Welcome to On Brand with Donnie Deutsch. I am Donnie Deutsch. I hope you're enjoying a holiday season and listening to On Brand. Today, we're going to look back at a few guests we had during 2023. Let's get right into it. We're going to start with Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey and Republican candidate for president of the United States. So here's a portion of my conversation with Chris. Let's talk about the Christie platform. Obviously, kind of what I'll call the emotional fist at the front is we can't have Trump and, and I'm a Trump beater. Underneath, the, let, let's go into some of the issues. You know, and, and you talked about this this morning on the show. The economy in so many ways is positive. When you look at GDP growth, when you, when you look at unemployment, when you look at even even inflation is cooling, when you look at us stacked up against the rest of the world, when you look at manufacturing, there's a lot of positive stuff. Now, of course, the the kind of the, the dirty little secret in there is that even though Americans feel good about their own pocketbooks, they still think we're on the wrong track. Do you use the economy? Where do you go? Absolutely. Because look, the single most powerful economic issue, which we're learning again today, because we haven't had to deal with it for 40 years, is inflation. And, and while you're right, inflation isn't as high as it was last summer, it's still higher than what we had for the most of 40 years, which inflation was running at about 2%. And you know, now we have it at, at, at you know, between five and six. When inflation outstrips wage growth, and which it's doing, people feel it, Donnie. And they feel it when they go to the gas pump. They feel it when they go to the supermarket. They feel it when they go to the clothing store to get clothes for their kids. Look, this summer is going to be rough for people because if they want to go on vacation, they're putting gas in their car. They feel it. When they start buying the back-to-school clothes in August, they're going to feel it. And so it is still the most powerful economic weapon um, where, where to make people feel badly. And it's what cost, let's face it, it's what cost Jimmy Carter the presidency in 1980. Uh, and it's going to cost Joe Biden the presidency, I think, you know, in very much the same way, unless we nominate Donald Trump, which will give people everything else to talk about and not the economy. But I think inflation is a big part of it. And the way to get at that, Donnie, we got to lower government spending. You know, we had all this COVID spending that needed to be done in the main to keep us afloat and to get us to the end of that crisis. But then we added trillions of dollars of spending onto the back end of it which was the far left's agenda. And even Larry Summers, as you'll remember, said, don't do this. It's going to cause wild inflation. Larry Summers mm-hmm. never known as a conservative economist, right? But here he is. He said it, and it turned out to be true. So that's the first thing on the economy is that you got to get spending under control. That means saying no to people. And you need someone who's had experience doing that because it's not pretty. You'll remember I had an $11 billion deficit on a $29 billion budget when I came into uh, the governorship of New Jersey. We didn't raise taxes. We cut 836 individual programs and we brought the budget into balance. But my approval ratings went down during that time, Donnie, because you're saying no to people. Yeah. I have a president who's willing to endure that. Let's, let's move to abortion. You, you've been a, a pro-lifer all, all your life. You, you believe that you were you were for Roe being overturned. You believe the state should be making the decision. Obviously, we've got a lot of craziness going on where in states where they're passing no exemptions. You know, somebody could be raped by their uncle or a woman could be, you know, bleeding out on a table and still no abortion. I know you don't believe that. I was also really moved this morning. I never heard you tell that story about your sister. You know, because we talk about pro-life or pro-choice in abstract terms, but when it's sometimes when you start to think about it and you put attached real human stories to it, your head tells a little bit. 
Well, that's it. And that's what I was trying to get to this morning, because, you know, you, you talked about the length of the interview this morning. It's very rare that you get that deeply into any issue. Right. So we got fairly deep into the abortion issue this morning. And since I had the time, I figured I would tell that story that for me, it's not it's not some theoretical issue. It is a sister who was born in 1971 to a teenage mom who, if it was two years later, I have to believe she would have gotten an abortion. And here's my sister now married, five children, and, you know, a, a huge part of our, our lives um, from the time my brother and I were quite young. And so these are complicated, difficult issues. And, you know, Mika was bringing up the issues this morning um, on the extreme of this issue from, from a pro-life perspective. But I also brought up the fact that I think it's awful that in my state, you can have a, you abortion up to nine months. Nobody, I would think, in America, or very few people think that that's a good thing to do. And, and so what I want to see happen in this country, Donnie, if it's possible, is for a consensus to form about what is the right rule here. And it's not going to form by it being forced on anybody. That's why I think the idea of having all the states weigh in and let's see what the consensus is with 50 states. Yes, you're going to have some people who are going to pass, you know, no exceptions, uh, abortion ban. And you're going to have some like New Jersey and New York who are doing nine-month abortions. Those are the extremes. Where does the consensus form in the middle of there? Because then I think the federal government might be able to bring the country together around that consensus. But I think right now the country is still too divided to do that. And everybody in each one of their states is going to have a right to have a voice and a say. Let's see what happens. Because look what happened in Kansas. Red state, everybody thought that that would be a pro-life state. It turned out to be more of a pro-choice state on that issue. So I think also we, we get in trouble predicting who's going to go which way. Let's see what happens because the people are going to have their voice heard on this. You know, if you just look at the pure, taking the moral, the, the humane issues out, if you look at the politics of it, 60% of the country was against the overturn of Roe v. Wade. If I am running a Democratic campaign, I am going to scare the hell out of women. I am going to make it seem that your extreme that you're talking about, as far as no exceptions to rape, no exceptions to incest, is going to be rampant. And a woman is going to not only lose her choice of her body, but in the most extreme cases. To me, I think that's going to be a lot at the top of a lot of communications that the Democrats are going to put forward going forward. I hope so, because if they do, they're going to lose for sure. Because what, what I will say is I think there are very few voters who that is their number one issue. And, and I do think that when you look at what's going on in the world, we just talked about inflation. We're seeing education testing scores that are going down, down, down for our kids K to 12. They're not going to allow them to be competitive in the rest of the world. You have Russian aggression in Ukraine. You have Chinese aggression in our own hemisphere, in Cuba and in Brazil. Um, you, you have a border issue that needs to be dealt with and an immigration issue that needs to be brought to a conclusion here so we can fill some of the 8 million empty jobs that we have in this country and be able to get a legal immigration system that works and continues to grow America's strength. One of our advantages over China is we're not nearly the aging population that they are. My point is, when all these issues are brought to the fore in a presidential race, I'm not saying abortion is unimportant. But what I'm saying is, I think it's a small percentage of people that will make that determine their vote. And my proof of that, Donnie, is that in New Jersey, I ran as a pro-lifer with exceptions for rape, incest, and life of the mother. And I won twice in what is one of the most 
liberal blue states in America. It's not that I changed their minds on abortion. I didn't. But they thought, one, I was giving them what my authentic point of view was. And two, in New Jersey at that moment, it wasn't the most important issue to them. And so I think that if Democrats do that, I think it may be a mistake. You, you mentioned immigration, and I'm going to now appoint you immigration czar. Tell me what Biden's been doing wrong and what Chris Christie's immigrations are. G- give me the actual policy. Here's the problem. He hasn't done anything. And in the same way, Trump didn't do anything to try to change the immigration policy. Trump's immigration policy was stop people at the border and build a wall. He built, he built you know, 47 miles a wall in four yeah. years, and, and we paid for all of it. Um, and that we haven't got our first peso from the Mexicans. Barack Obama, Donnie, when he had 60 votes in the United States Senate, could have imposed whatever immigration solution he thought was best for the country. He did nothing. And the last president to really give this a shot was George W. Bush. I mean, I think that the, the problem is we haven't had presidential leadership on it. Remember the last time we dealt with immigration in a comprehensive way, Ronald Reagan was the president. Yeah. And what he did was he brought both sides together and he, and he forced compromise on both sides. It wasn't perfect, but it helped the situation get better. And, you know, that's why I think having a Republican governor from a blue state as president may be a pretty good idea. Think about two of the most intractable problems we have in America today, immigration and Social Security. And Ronald Reagan was the last president to fix both. And so... You know, there's something to be said for a Republican governor in a blue state who has to learn how to force compromise, but also stand by certain principles. And that's the kind of approach, Donnie, I would bring to it. Each side's going to have to get something in this argument in order to make them agreeable. Right now, both sides stand with their feet in cement. A president's the one who can break those feet out of cement. If if I if you hired me to help you out, I, I'd say on the one hand, Governor, the, the fact that you're punching, jabbing Trump, obviously you have to do. The other thing I would suggest, and it was interesting, I was I happened to hear a speech from Jamie Dimon, the J.P. Morgan uh, CEO, and he was talking about how good things are for our country, not as a political speech, and he wasn't supporting Biden, but it was just just ticking over. It was a message of positivity. Hey, you know what? We're not great, we're not perfect, but. Damn, we're really fucking good in so many measures. Where is the room for a positive message on a Republican platform? Because that's, if you look throughout history, that yes, negative campaigning is crucial and is important, but you also need a little morning in America in there. And that is completely missing from any Republican message out there. You have to give people hope, right? And and so, you know, we've been in this race for five weeks. We're going to have a lot to say as we go forward on that. But I did listen to that Jamie Dimon talk. Um, and I think Jamie made a lot of really good points. And so what that should say to people is we're doing that well with a completely dysfunctional government, with a government that gives itself a round of applause when it approves the debt ceiling. That becomes <laughs> a really? celebration, right? That we agreed that we should actually um, pay the bills that we've already incurred. Um, I think if we actually got a government where we were forcing things to happen. We worked on our industrial base in this country, created more manufacturing jobs and and brought more of those things to the middle class of this country. That if we talked about educational freedom in this country, especially for our urban families, where they should not be stuck in these failure factories anymore, Donnie, you look at these numbers, these NAEP numbers that came out, the national testing, it's disgraceful. 
And if you're an African-American family or Hispanic-American family in the city of Newark, in the city of Chicago, in the city of Los Angeles, what's your hope for your kid? And why should it be that only guys like you and I, if we choose to send our children outside the public school system, have the wherewithal to do it? What would provide hope in the minority community is hope for their kids. And educational freedom is something that I'm going to be spending a lot of time talking about. And this is not just like what lesson plans are you being taught, what books are in the library. This is about the fundamental choice for a parent to be the one who decides where his or her child should go to school. So I think there's going to be a lot of positive things to talk about that you can talk about because of the things that Jamie said, that we do have a foundation that anybody else would trade for right now. So let's build on it. It's what I talked about on my announcement. When America has gone big at these crucial moments, we've always come out of it stronger, smarter, richer, and freer. Remember it, 1776, 1861, the Civil War, 1941, World War II, and 81 against the evil empire. We asked the country to sacrifice to do big things. We always came out of it better, a leader around the world, and a, and a country that we were proud to be. That's the kind of president I'm going to be, Donnie. Do the big things. My thanks to Chris Christie. We might always may not always see eye to eye on things, but we're able to listen to each other and learn from each other. Up next, I'm joined by the host of The Last Word on MSNBC, Lawrence O'Donnell. Let's get into it. I want to just shift gears for a little bit and talk about uh, the life and times of Lawrence O'Donnell. First of all, we're talking around, it's around noontime. Obviously, your show airs at, at 10 p.m. Eastern time. Talk to me about making the sausage. Talk to me. I mean, I, I've been to this party. I understand it. But for the average viewer, it is overwhelming that you guys do five hours of live TV that every night with a blank piece of paper, you put this thing together. Take me through how the, how the, how the show comes together. Well, it's, you know, the bad news is that I have to write it. And like most writers I know, I hate writing. And I, and this, you know, I noticed this, Keith Overman really was the guy who created this phenomenon on MSNBC. You know, prior to uh, Keith, the shows, most of the shows were basically a version of, you know. They were wheels. They were basically, yeah. I mean, you just did a news wheel. Guys at the bar, guys and gals at the bar talking, you know, that's kind of a hardball formula. And that's basically what it was. And Keith comes along and he writes the show. And whether you like it or not, what happened was um, the audience was then in an author's grip for an hour. And it really made a difference, which made sense to me because that's how primetime drama works. You know, you're in an author's grip for an hour. And it made sense that that, that would work. Then Rachel comes along and she writes the show. And then you, you see, wow, look at these these two shows have the highest ratings by far, by, you know, like not even close, nothing yeah, else close. Yeah, double right? the triplet, yeah. So I, I get the third one, and the bad news is, in order to get a rating, you have to write it. I would love to do the hardball <laughs> show. Love yeah. to do that. Just walk in and go, okay. I mean, I used to substitute host hardball. I loved it. Sure. It was great. I didn't write anything, you know, and... um and but it turns out no the holding the audience is in that author's grip and so so I've had to do that and I still have to do it and it writing is a very strange process to describe because it's hard for me to say when I'm on the clock and when I'm not I mean I could literally see a tweet at 10 a.m. that makes me start thinking in a writerly way but if you were if you had a video camera on me 
you wouldn't see me do something that looked like what we would agree is work, you know, until, I don't know, but, you know, closer it's to baking. five, it's five or yeah. six or something, you know? And so, so that show, I, I write that show in a very high speed panic. Uh, and I, I've always wanted to come into the material as late as possible because I could think something's important at 11 a.m. Yeah. and it's not important by four. So I don't want to get too invested. So I'm, I'm, and I'm doing other things, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm doing things, I'm going to get laundry and stuff, you know, I'm doing things that are not on the job, you know, during the day. Um, and, and so it's, but it's, so it's very hard for me to say, here's the moment where the job begins. Um, yeah. but, but officially, <clears throat> you know, I, and in COVID, once I, I started, the idea was get to the office as late as possible because you want as little exposure, mm-hmm. you know, to people as possible. So I, I, I don't, I get there around five, you know, and the real physical act of writing, uh, begins then. Um, and, and it's, it doesn't, I, I was going to, it, it gets, it gets easier, but you, but I only know that, uh, after I've done it, meaning I write an amount now that used to take me, uh, 10 years ago, it used to take me hours. But the funny thing is, you know, before I did this show, the same amount of writing, 1500 words used to take me two weeks. I mean, I used to do a column for New York magazine that was like 1200 words. And I said, I was the only person who negotiated for as few columns as possible per year, because it's so hard for me to do. And so I was doing about, I don't know, 20 something a year, like basically every two weeks. And it killed me every single time. I was also writing at the West Wing at the time, but that's just an excuse. It just killed me to sit down and write the kind of organized prose that is basically what I'm doing every night here. And I remember marveling when Keith Oberman left, because when, when Keith left, I had, he left on a Friday suddenly, and I had to jump into that time slot on Monday. And I did a a tribute to Keith uh, that time because I saw so many things that he did and achieved just in terms of television that no one had done before, including what I calculated to be writing about five op-ed pieces a week, full-fledged op-ed pieces a week. And I pointed out, you know, at the time that, you know, Maureen Dowd and the big New York Times columnists, their deal is to do twice a week. You know, some of them once a week, 800 words once or twice a week. Keith was doing more than that every night. And I remember like about five years into this show, I wrote one of these things that, that, that toward the end, a long script that's just me talking. And I said to Nick Ramsey, a guy who was working with me on it, I said, why did that take so long? It, was, it took like three hours. And he went, he went, boom, boom. He went, well, it's 1,500 words. And I went, oh, my God. Right. You know, that, that took three hours. That used to take me, you know, two weeks, three weeks. Um, and, you know, now I could, now there's times when that, that kind of output occurs starting at 8.15. You know, starting at like it's 8.15. I got to be downstairs by nine fifteen, and it's and it's and you can end up with over a thousand words, and and so I I never if you I kept if you told me that was possible you know ten years ago I would have said no it, it, you don't get it, and so um, the weird thing is the fact that I end up being able to do it faster does not equate to it's easier. I I go through the same. You just, it's, 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 it's I mean, I think up, right, right. The, the only, Donnie, the only thing that I've lost 
over the time of doing this show is the deep disbelief that I'm going to do it. See, I, as a writer, I don't believe myself. I don't talk right. about any project, long-term project that I'm writing because I don't believe I'm going to finish it. Well, you've basically said that your entire career has been accidental. You basically yeah. keep tripping yeah. into these things. And, and so what I now know is I don't care what time it is on the clock, how late I am on these scripts. I know I am going to get this show written by 10 p.m. And that I didn't used to know. I mean, for the first, <laughs> for the first several years, I didn't know. Uh, it was like... It was just raw panic, you know, as the clock was was ticking away, um, and it, and I I always used to wonder is the way is there a way to do this without writing it and and it, would it be more alive if I didn't write it and of course the fear is no you'll just go blank you just won't remember you know what you what you meant to write right right and right. the really funny thing is I've written these things right and and honest to God I don't know what's coming. By the time it's in the prompter, like literally two hours later, an hour later, and it's coming by, I don't know what the next line That's amazing. is. amazing. So it really is, it, I am, I, you really are seeing someone say this thing as if it is off the top of his head. That's because amazing. I've, I've actually forgotten it. You, you have a very different uh, pedigree than pretty much anybody that does what you do for a living. And do you ever find yourself, because you, you, I love that term, author's grip, drifting, because the daily truth now or lack of truth or just the daily events are so theater of the absurd do you ever find yourself drifting into a west wing mode where not that you're writing fiction but you're that that writer's muscle is taking over and do you ever kind of have to catch yourself yeah it 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 wants to sometimes and i and i have to i usually will pull back from it or mute it because it, it would be too cute for this and the thing that i always remember is uh, i'm not the only show and if I have a take on it that doesn't quite fit within the frame of this show, then, you know, uh, John Stewart's going to do it on Apple or, you know, John Oliver's going to, Seth Meyers going to do it brilliantly every night. I mean, Seth Meyers does stuff. I, I'm almost relying on Seth Meyers, you know, every right. single night that, that he's going to come out there and take this story where, where it can be taken, it should be taken, but we can't take it because this really requires yeah. a very smart, very politically wise, uh, professional comedy guy like Seth Meyers, Stephen Colbert, same thing. I'm, I'm relying on both of those guys every night, you know, that please audience, uh, don't go to sleep after this. But of course, yeah. in my ratings, I can watch them going to sleep during the hour. Like <laughs> when you get to 10 p.m., there's a funny thing in the ratings. You know, there's a, there can be a drop off like, you know, Nicole can have a drop off, you know, from 5 to 6 p.m., from sure. 4 to 5 p.m. In the course of an hour of TV, there tends to be a drop off. Right. But and you, but, and you can almost always track where they went. You go, oh, look, yeah. they went from here to there. You know, they, yeah. maybe they went over to CNN or something. Although yeah. that doesn't happen anymore. That, that's, that's not but, happening very much these days. But right? when you're at 10 p.m., your drop off, you're almost always, com your biggest competitor is sleep. That is your biggest competitor yes. with the audiences. Yeah. They're done. It's 1020. It's your first commercial break. Thank you. Good night. Uh, see you tomorrow. Yeah, so, yeah. And, yeah. And, and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Um, but so it's, um, you know, it, it's, uh, I, I just think, uh, thank God for the online replay of stuff that Seth does and that Stephen Colbert yeah. does because they are. An they also have one advantage over you. They've got about a dozen writers sitting there. So it's, yeah. it's also no, a little no, but it's, but that perspective that they right. bring to it. I mean, like how, 
everybody wants to do Santos the way the way Seth and Stephen does Santos. Yeah. Everybody yeah. does, but yeah. but you know we gotta we can't. You know we're not. We don't have the audience. We're not professional comedians. We're we're not comedy writers. It takes a lot of professionalism to do it the right way, the way they do it. Yeah. Uh, and we just have to. I just have to get on there and talk about the $700,000 and keep chasing it. My thanks to Lawrence O'Donnell for taking the time to join On Brand. We'll close out today's episode with CNN's Jake Tapper. Where do you go with CNN? You know, CNN is one of the great, I'm a marketer, I'm a branding guy. It's one of the great marketing, branding, discussion points in the world. If if you're going to line it, like, where do you go with it? And all the obvious stuff, and you got MS to the left, and you got Fox to the right, and do people want straight news anymore? And all the things we go on. I I put you now, you are the czar of CNN. You're responsible for more than four to six on Sunday mornings, and you have, Amy Antelis decides she's retiring in five years, and you take her job. What 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 would you do with CNN? I mean, I think what Amy and uh, Virginia and Eric and David are doing right now is exactly right, which is just focus on the journalism. Focus on the journalism. Let's not have any drama. We don't need to be in the headlines. Um, And there's such good journalism being done uh, day in, day out. You know, we are not trying to preach to an ideological base. That is not our business model. Our model is to be news uh, and provide interesting interviews with policymakers uh, and uh, people in public life. And, you know, we have Clarissa Ward abroad covering wars and and, uh, Fred Plykin and others in Ukraine. And I mean, we just have some of the best reporters in the business. Uh, uh, Shimon Prokopes just was uh, awarded a Peabody for his incredible coverage uh, of Uvalde in the aftermath of Uvalde, where he was basically the mayor of the victims and their and their families of that shooting. He was he was their representative more so than any politician or public official or, or policeman or lawyer. And that's that is what I think we should be doing as much as possible. We need to be the voice. We need to be the voices for uh, the public demanding answers, uh, whether we are demanding answers of, of the president or the White House uh, in general or the Congress, whatever. And just like get the ideology away, get the partisanship away. Just focus on the job. And I think that's what we're doing. And that's, I would just say, keep doing it. Yeah. And the, 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 the million dollar question, obviously, because it is a business, is, is there enough of an appetite for that? For that, for the, whereas, because we can get bespoke media now, because I can watch it the way I want it, not necessarily. And right. is there the, the big question, and I don't have the answer to this, because in an ideal world, what you guys are doing and going for is what, I would want, and I think what any decent soul would want. And the big question is, from a market point of view, where will the market come out on that? And that because we have trained people to get, you know, you, you think about the Trump indictment the other day, and you go, okay, if I want to hear about the government weapon, weaponize, weaponizing against you know, right. Trump, I can hear that. And if I want to hear about really the way they're taking him down, and I can, I can kind of get a little glee in that, I know where to right. go for that. And is there... Is the audience there, and this is a TBD, for exactly what you described, straight journalism, and and here's where it is, and yeah. here's where we go. I, I, 
I think there is. Um, I think, you know, if you look, I'm, I'm, I'm not somebody just to be completely candid. I'm not somebody who focuses on the numbers a great, a great deal. They, you know, they email them out I, every day. I do not, I'm not on that. Email you're smart. Do you're smart. I, every time I've had a show, I've done that and I've gotten me in trouble. So yeah, you're smart. No, you smart get, you get obsessed and it's just like, yeah. uh, you get obsessed and, and it's, again, it's long-term trends. L- looking at, looking at quarter hours and minute by minutes. I, it's, it's actually insane when you think about it a minute by minute. Well, also, I, I happen to be a, something of a Nielsen truther, but we can talk about that off camera uh, sometime about how much I actually believe these surveys uh, when it comes to the small sample size of cable news versus uh, network. That said, um, that's a you Joe, know, I, I, I want to just hit that point. I want to hit that point for a second. Do you know that in New York City, if you want to yeah. know people over 75,000 plus household, which is I, I'm still a lot of money, but it's a very that's, that's a big scope of New York City. That there are six Nielsen boxes that define in New York City See, that's my what point. people. That's my point. Think about that. Yeah, there's six 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 people. Somebody gets up to take a shit, and the whole world changes. It's just amazing, isn't the it? Technology exists. It does, and I to show where every viewer think, is. And I think people are just terrified to find out what it is of the truth. I think yeah. Just don't know. But like the technology exists to find out what every TV that is on is watching, including ones, by the way. We always get shit uh, CNN does for like, oh, it's just a, you know, air, airport visit. The, there's no Nielsen boxes people are watching. at the airport. There's, yeah, there's yeah. no, but there's, the people are watching, but there's, there's no Nielsen. There's, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. Yeah. And the waiting rooms, bars, none of that is included in Nielsen. None of it. But in any case, the, the technology is there if they want to find out. But I think everybody's Every terrified. Viewer, they're terrified so because they, the, the airport's clothes come off. Absolutely. That said, I'm, my understanding is that our ratings are going back up, which is great. And... I do think that the uh, that the audience is there. I think that the 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 just the the strategy has to be, and I think that this is what uh, the current owners uh, Zaslav and and uh, and what the current management of CNN think. The strategy has to be: we're not just competing with Fox and MS, and let's be honest, we're not really competing with Fox generally, right? Not at all. Um, but we're competing with. Uh, Shark Week, and we're discuss- we're competing yeah. with anything that's on TV, and we just have to convince yeah. people that our that our programming and our news programming uh, is worth changing the channel from National Geographic or from HBO or from Netflix. Like we have to we have to be on their radar for everything, uh, and that means we have to be all over social media, not just Twitter and Facebook, but TikTok and uh, Snapchat and everywhere where the kids are. Uh, uh, and where I don't think mainstream media is doing a very good job. And we just have to be out there saying, we're here. Take a look. Here's some good stuff. So within this, what I agree with is the right positioning or the positioning that CNN can own. You were very outspoken about the Trump town hall. Uh, so where, where did CNN go wrong there? I actually didn't say anything about the Trump town hall. You didn't? Why did uh, I think I read you talking about, or it must have been people heard or so? I, I, somehow I took that away. So my mistake, I apologize. No, it's fine. It's just uh, my basic take on the Trump town hall is that it's a conversation. The conversation begins with, do you think that the leading Republican presidential candidate should get a town hall? I mean, let's, let's start with that. Do you, Which do I you? think so. my only my yes, my problem was don't stack the audience. Don't make it a show. Don't put a laugh track on it. I mean, you know, so does he deserve an audience? Yes. Our audiences for town halls always have been uh, Republican primary and caucus voters. Uh, and and for Democratic town halls, Democratic primary and caucus voters. So we didn't stack it with Trump people. It was those were 
New Hampshire Republicans, uh, people right. that were going to vote in the New Hampshire primary. And there were people in, I, I mean, I wasn't there, but my understanding is that there were people in the audience that were not hooting and hollering, but obviously we heard the hooting and hollering. I think the question, I think that, I think the, the, the biggest lesson that I learned personally from the town hall is should it be live or should it be taped? Because Fox did one with him uh, maybe like a week or so later, and it was taped. They did it on tape. And that might be the solution when it comes to somebody that is so unpredictable and says but such then you're setting is but then you're setting yourself up for the obvious criticism oh you guys are gonna okay, edit yeah. out or you're gonna you, you know so that 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 leads to a whole other set of slippery slow problems well i mean i guess the question then is what what, what would anybody have done differently i would i would have done it again i i had thought what the only critique i had as a viewer was oh my god they the somehow there was a deal made that the audience was going to be a little bit friendlier than one would have anticipated. But to your point, you say, no, this is, we stack the audience exactly as we stack it with New Hampshire voters, some independents, some diehard Republicans, and that's just what happened. So I don't think you could have done it any differently if, if the audience was that, with that composition. He won the New Hampshire primary in uh, 2016. He, I think, was within 2,000 votes, I might be wrong, of winning New Hampshire in 2016. It, he, he, he lost it handily in 2020. Um, but, you know, that is a um, th that that is a, uh, a a purple state that has a very strong Republican Party tradition. And the people in the audience are reflective of the Republican Party. I mean, yeah. we were just talking about the adulation of Donald Trump by a sizable chunk of the Republican Party. So I would posit that what people who saw that didn't like was not what, what CNN did. I would posit that that is what is a reality that a lot of people are uncomfortable with, which is that Donald Trump is capable of mocking a woman who accused him and, and won in court of sexual assault uh, and is cheered and people laugh. And I don't like it, but... That is a percentage of the country. And I, I get that people didn't like it. But again, I would I would posit that what they're reacting to is not CNN. What they're reacting to is the uh, fact that a lot of Republicans love this guy. And even when he is, you know, arguably defaming, and she's now added to her complaint against him, arguably defaming a woman who credibly accused him of sexual assault, according to a, a jury of his peers. I mean, that's, that's that's the counter argument. What would it take? You did a you did a great town hall with Nikki Haley not too far after. A very different, obviously, different candidate and different decorum. What would it take at this point for somebody else to break through, or is that just not possible? Uh, I think it's even possible. if somebody, know. what what would it take? Well, I mean, possible. what would it take for them? I mean, forget Trump imploding and forget Trump doing some plea deal where he, he doesn't run or he gets sick or they know save Trump doesn't do any more self-destruction than he's done. What would it take for a Nikki Haley, for a Tim Scott, for a Glenn Young and somebody that's not even in the role to a DeSantis? Because my, I keep saying that the mistake they're making, you can't out Trump Trump and DeSantis is trying to, is just Trump 2.0, but not better. It's, a, it's like a new product. If you want somebody to try a new product, you've got to give them a different set of benefits. You can't just come in with the same thing. So I'd love your thoughts on that. I think that you have to take him head on and explain to the American people or rather to explain to Republican 
voters why voting for him is a mistake. Um, and it has to be more than just uh, he's a loser. Um, you know, he, he led to losses in 2018, 2020, and 2022. That, that is a compelling argument, but it needs it to is be a compelling, more. It is a compelling argument, but it needs to be one. Yeah. Yes. But, I mean, you have to take him head on, and then you have to provide your alternative view of the kind of governance you want uh, and why they should vote for you. And um, I haven't I, – I, I feel like they're all kind of just testing their messages now. Yeah. Um, but if we but if we have, you know, a debate, and I guess the first one is in August with Fox, if we have a right. debate and it's um, a bunch of people just attacking the liberal media and Joe Biden and saying Donald Trump is, you know, was set up or whatever, like, I don't I don't know what that does. You can't. In other words, all of his competitors have to go on that stage saying, I want to be president, not I want to be Donald Trump's vice president. And yes, that's, that's, if they that's actually very well make put. that yeah. argument, if they make that argument, I think he could break through. I don't know that he can. I don't know that, you know, having 10 candidates running against him will help when it comes time to vote. But in terms of in the in terms of August, September, October, November, December, five months of debates um, before the first vote is cast in Iowa, I think it could be. I think I think they could take him down. You know, he's 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 not at 95 percent. I mean, he's he's at no. some, what is he like? in the 40s or something i mean he's he's beatable i think but that doesn't mean that he will be i mean i still i still think the good money is on him being the nominee but i do think he's beatable absolutely i want to take this time to wish all of you a happy holidays and remind you to rate review and follow the podcast on apple podcasts spotify wherever you get your favorite podcasts